0: I'm Bonnie Glazer, director of the China Power Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In this episode of the China Power podcast, we're going to discuss the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on the Belt and Road Initiative, China's signature trillion-dollar development project. BRI was established in 2013 with the stated goal of promoting the flow of goods, investment, and people. Many observers believe that it has broader strategic designs. And since its inception, 138 countries have joined and received assistance in financing or infrastructure projects in the country. These include hard infrastructure projects such as ports, highways, and installing communication grids. China's also expanded its BRI projects to include the Digital Silk Road and the Health Silk Road. The Digital Silk Road focuses on enhancing recipient countries' high-tech capabilities. The Health Silk Road comprises China's global public health efforts to battle the pandemic. COVID-19 has caused unforeseen challenges to many BRI projects. Travel restrictions have delayed the progress of projects already underway. Economic uncertainty has led partner countries to reconsider their priorities with some renegotiating agreements and others going so far as to cancel projects. In addition, the pandemic has prompted Chinese leaders, as well as leaders from partner countries, to reconceptualize how BRI projects should be carried out, with part of this involving the greening of some of the projects, making them more environmentally friendly. Joining us today to discuss how the COVID-19 pandemic has affected and altered China's Belt and Road Initiative, we have Dr. Agatha Kratz. Dr. Kratz is an Associate Director at Rhodium Group, where she coordinates European activities and leads research on both EU-China relations and China's commercial diplomacy. She also contributes to Rhodium's work on China's global investment, industrial policy, and technology ambitions. And importantly, she's a non-resident adjunct fellow of the Reconnecting Asia Project at CSIS. So thank you for joining us today, Agatha. Thank you for having me. So let's start by level setting the issue for our audience and, and talk about the Belt and Road Initiative prior to the onset of the pandemic. How successful was BRI in the years leading up to 2020?
1: It's a good question. And I think you need to divide the years leading up to 2020 from the 2013 point that you mentioned just now into two distinct periods. And I'm simplifying here, but I think it's helpful to get the picture right. Let's say from 2013 to 2017, You know, from a researcher's point of view, the Belt and Road was encountering pretty significant success, whatever you define, you know, by it. Certainly a lot of diplomatic and media attention and coverage, the amount of attention that the concept got was incredible. If you were researching the initiative back then, you know, the media articles come in week after week, grand announcement of the Belt and Road being a $1 trillion, $4 trillion, however many trillion dollar initiative Which I don't even think ever was in a Chinese document, at least back in those days, you know, but just the press taking up the concept and rolling with it made it really successful in terms of a PR initiative. But it's also true of China's, you know, actual global footprint. If you see and look at proxies, we've got to measure the scale, the extent and and the spread of the Belt and Road, you had almost a doubling in Chinese overseas lending between 2013 and 2017. If you use, you know, Boston University's recent data, you see an increase from about 40 billion at the onset of the Belt and Road to 70 billion in 2016, 17. So a lot of increase, a very sharp increase. If you look at Mofcom numbers, you can see a doubling of signed overseas contract over the period. So you were at about 125 billion per year of contract signed, and it kind of shot up to 250 billion in contract signed over the period. So that's pretty successful if you look at not just the media attention, but also the concrete progress on the ground. And it's quite interesting because back in the days in 2015, 2016 is when I was starting my PhD dissertation. I started my dissertation work a little bit late in my career and I was still pretty green in terms of PhD work. And I started and wanted to study why the Belt and Road was so successful back in the days, looking at Chinese overseas rail project. And I think that's a good anchor in time to understand what happened around that time. Because as I started doing research on Chinese overseas rail project, and I know you've got some interest for rail as well. Uh, I've seen your your latest work. It was quite funny because the more I looked for success stories about Chinese overseas Belt and Road rail project, the more, especially in 2016, 2017, I was stumbling again and again on counter examples, contracts lost, projects delayed financing pending approval, but never dispersed recipient countries pushing back even before Malaysia, you know, Thailand pushing back again, rail project. And so it was quite interesting because after two years of PhD, I started changing my mind and I decided to try and explain why Chinese overseas rail diplomacy was actually most of the time a failure. So this is a nice, just a nice anchor in time. And I think there are a number of reasons that, you know, after 2016, 2017, The success of the Belt and Road started waning a little bit. Some of it is external. You had pushback from countries like Malaysia, as I mentioned, but many others, Sierra Leone, Nepal, Myanmar, calling of projects back in the days and many more since then, mostly because of concerns around the debt sustainability of many of those Belt and Road projects that were being announced and were being pushed. But you also had, at that point in time, of course, rumors of Chinese firms obtaining control over the Hambantota port, and that didn't help. It really kickstarted this whole idea narrative of a debt trap diplomacy. And we can speak about that, about what actually happens in reality when Chinese renegotiates loans. But back in the days, you know, the feeling was if we get into trouble with Chinese lenders and Chinese banks, this is what faces us as recipient countries. And of course, at that point, all of a sudden the international media started picking up on those setbacks, started picking up on those drawbacks. And you know, the attention, the PR and the initiative turned pretty sour. That's not the only thing, though, and this is what was interesting with my dissertation work, is that externally, of course, there was a lot of pushback, but I had already seen in 2015, 2016, pushback internally as well. I was interviewing Chinese companies, I was interviewing Chinese bankers, and they were telling me that they were uncomfortable with the pace of the Belt and Road Initiative. They were uncomfortable with the unsustainability of certain projects, certain loans. And they really wanted to see it slow down. They were pushed politically to do a lot of those deals, but their appetite for them was actually much lower. And so I think, you know, in 2016, 2017, certainly 2018, there was an alignment of stars, external and internal, for the initiative to slow down. And I don't know if it is a failure. I think a better Belt and Road is a more sustainable Belt and Road, both for China and for recipients. But certainly there was a huge change there. And so getting into 2020, we are at... I don't know if it is the bottom, but we are at a low point in Chinese Belt and Road, overseas lending, overseas contracts. We see that in all of the proxies that we can look at contracts, lending, you know, even BOP data. And I don't know that it's a failure once again, but the point is much less lending, a lot of refocusing of the initiative on different types of projects, different types of flows. And certainly, uh, and we can speak about that in a minute, refocusing also on past lending and past unsustainable lending with, you know, to me at least the main driver this year of the initiative being debt renegotiation and and processes to manage past debt.
0: So let's talk then a little bit about what happened at the beginning of the pandemic and of course, over the course of what is now more than a year since it started in Wuhan, and then of course spread to the rest of the world. How has COVID-19 affected the Belt and Road initiative? Are you able to disaggregate some of the other variables that may have been affecting the Belt and Road? We know that there were some Belt and Road contracts that were canceled. There were funding to some of them were certainly lowered. There were cases in uh, Pakistan and Angola that were expected to be lower than originally planned. And so then what were the problems that arose and then what steps did China take to address these problems?
1: So I believe that what COVID did was accentuate a pre-existing trend. So where we were seeing a deceleration of overseas projects and overseas lending, COVID amplified that, where we were seeing an increase in restructuring Cases of debt restructuring, COVID amplified that, where we were seeing projects being cancelled or shelved, which happened a lot pre-2020. It's not a new phenomenon. You had seen a lot of those happening. Once again, in my dissertation work, I think I covered 24 cases of Chinese overseas rail projects. Two-thirds of those were either lost, cancelled, or shelled for more than five years. So it wasn't a new phenomenon altogether. But COVID certainly accentuated that. You add to it, of course, travel restriction, but also financial fiscal conditions deteriorating in recipient countries because of a stop in or disruption in trade flows, disruption in tourism flows, and lockdowns, which affected not just you know advanced economies, but emerging countries, low-income countries. All of that kind of compounded to probably what's going to be an even starker slowdown in 2020 of the Belt and Road Initiative. I have to say, we don't have numbers for 2020. The most recent numbers we've got are for 2019 from colleagues at CARI, from colleagues at BU. And so we'll see what, at the end of the day, comes out of it. But all of the proxy numbers we can use, all of the announcements we're seeing are pointing to a deceleration. Now, you add to that... A phenomenon where a lot of past loans have gone sour and contexts where resources and especially human resources at certain Chinese banks, especially CDB and Exim, are already by nature limited, but all of a sudden get mobilized to renegotiate all debt rather than make new loans. And you get to a situation where it's just really, really hard to keep Belt and Road going in 2020 because of all of those factors. So it really accentuated that trend. The reaction is still to be seen, to be honest. I think there was a lot of ad hoc problem management for 2020, as for everyone everywhere around the world. And so a lot of what we saw was a rekindling of Chinese overseas assistance to focus more on health. There's no denying of that. A lot more on vaccines, a lot more on even thinking about construction projects, a lot more hospitals being announced and uh, financed. But most of all, really a pullback from Belt and Road Activity, just to give everyone time to manage the pandemic at home. CDB has a very big role to play in China to help the recovery and abroad, of course, to just manage situation in recipient countries. So that's what we're seeing for the moment. It
0: will be interesting to see the full year number. You've described China as having different motives when it comes to the BRI in the wake of the pandemic. On the one hand, of course, they seek foreign policy achievements. But on the other hand, the domestic situation in China really demands more conservative economic action and more attention. So how do you think that China is handling this balancing act?
1: Well, I think a little bit like what I just described. So less willingness to lend and a refocusing of efforts on domestic priorities, especially for those banks that are also inward facing. Exim is a case of a mostly outward facing bank of course, but all of the other financiers of the Belt and Road have domestic mandates, have domestic balance sheet that they need to be careful of and that they need to care about. And so you know, I think there was a lot of commercial regrouping, making sure that things were happening and stabilizing on the ground domestically. And then being active where it was really important and high value, once again, health still fraud And for certain, maybe lower scale project, greener project, you mentioned that in your introduction. So focusing the resources that were available and the fuel resources that were available, where they really mattered diplomatically and where they really mattered geopolitically. And that was, you know, fighting the pandemic abroad and continuing to finance certain projects, but maybe more sustainable,
0: greener projects. To what extent has China's concern about its negative image as a result of some of the projects been a factor in what has happened since the onset of COVID-19? Do you think the drivers are more the factors that you've described about concerns about sustainability, or do you think their image has also been a factor? As, As you noted earlier, that the problems and some of the failures and cancellations and countries like Malaysia. Asia, with the revamping of the rail project, certainly led to some negative views of China.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's no contradiction here. I think the real reputation of risk at the moment for China's Belt and Road Initiative is around sustainability. You know, there's, of course, this idea of a debt trap diplomacy. It's getting debunked somehow and slowly by credible research, including ours. But the real issue and reputational issue for China is to convince recipient countries that receiving, accepting Chinese loans isn't going to drive them into debt crisis. And a lot of what we're seeing at the moment, the debt renegotiation processes that are happening at the moment, are putting pressure on China's reputation because everyone likes to receive a loan freshly. Everyone likes to you know, cut a ribbon on a new project. Everyone likes to have five years of grace period to be able to start getting an infrastructure project to work. But no one likes to be asked money back. No one likes to run into trouble on their debt. No one likes to be around a renegotiation table, restructuring debt with a debtor. And so the long term reputational rift from this is pretty high from China, that after the waves of renegotiation we're seeing in 2020, 2021, that a number of countries, many countries, in fact, that have had to have those very hard discussion with China over, you know, the COVID pandemic times will be much more reluctant to take on new debt. And I think that's actually the biggest threat on Belt and Road in terms of reputation, that Chinese debt is long lastingly associated with perception of unsustainability, perception of financing white elephants, perception of running those country into fiscal financial trouble.
0: So you've written in some of your publications that China has, yes, been willing to renegotiate loans, but has not been willing to allow total debt forgiveness, uh, except in the cases of small zero interest loans. And, you know, you cited examples of China's recent restructuring deals with Angola, uh, the Republic of Congo, I'm sure there's many others. Can you explain why China is adverse to agreeing to debt forgiveness? And what does this tell us about the future success of BRI, given that, of course, there's an economic crisis that has coincided with the COVID-19 pandemic? Even a few years of debt forgiveness may not be enough for some of these countries. So why won't China agree to forgive some of the debt? And do you think this is a firm stance that even... Even a couple of years from now, they will continue to insist on renegotiations rather than debt forgiveness.
1: So I want to add just a bit of information here just to put this in context. Actually, when you look at Chinese debt renegotiation processes, and we've had a look at about 150 cases, actually a wide majority of those are debt that's being forgiven. The issue is that debt forgiveness almost only happens for China's smallest loans and smallest debt instrument, which are zero interest loans, which are a very, very small size. So although that's about half of the cases we've got in our database, it's about 10-15% of the total amounts that have been renegotiated to debt. And almost inevitably, that forgiveness won't make any difference for the debt sustainability of the recipient country. So it's a nice gesture. It's certainly diplomatically positive. It allows Chinese MFA officials to say that they're doing a lot for debt relief. But at the end of the day, it doesn't do much. On top of that, you know, those usually happen at Focac, and they usually are followed right after in the minute that follows by an announcement of an even bigger, this time, commercially driven loan. So they don't solve anything or They don't solve much, I should say. Now, for the loans that are really important ones, you know, more specific, more typical of the Belt and Road Initiative, either big concessional loans, big preferential loans or big commercial loans, you are right here to say that there's actually almost never forgiveness. This is very, very rare. And the reasons are of four main kinds. The first one is process. There's actually no set process for forgiving debt beyond zero interest loans. And so Chinese institutions in charge of disbursing those loans and renegotiating those loans just don't have a process in place, don't have a standard procedure in place for doing it. They're doing it on an ad hoc basis. And so it's just much, much easier to forgive zero interest loans because it's officially okay to do so. And it's officially done in a way that's very, very simple. The second one is the amounts that are lent through the ILs versus through other loans, as I just said, are much bigger. So forgiving those if you're China Development Bank, if you're Exim Bank, if you're any bank is going to be much more burdensome on your balance sheet. So you're going to think about it twice and very, very hard because for most of the loans, at least in our database that are commercial loans, renegotiated commercial loans, many of them are above 1 billion. Some of them, I think we've got at least 10 cases of over 10 billion loan or renegotiation processes. And that means that renegotiating those and accepting forgiveness is going to be hurtful to your balance sheet as a bank third is the nature of the debt a lot of china's belt and road financing is actually commercial and so in terms of terms in terms of the level of interest rate in terms of the repayment period and in terms of the lenders to a certain extent cdb has behaved very much like a commercial actor in belt and road projects and so if the lending is commercial why should there be and i'm speaking from a chinese point of view here but why should there be a granting of forgiveness This is probably some of the explanation behind it. And finally, and maybe most importantly, is the fact that this would send the wrong signal at the moment where 30 billion of Chinese debt is under renegotiation across about 15, 20 renegotiation processes. If China agrees to forgiveness on a commercial loan in particular for any one of those countries, There's a fear, there's a concern that there will be moral hazard. There will be other countries asking for exactly the same. And where does it lead Chinese financiers? So I think that's problematic. It's also problematic from a domestic optics point of view. You know, if you're seen to be forgiving debt abroad from countries that have bad fundamental, uh, financial, fiscal fundamental, but at home, you're saying that citizens or banks for that matter should be on a deleveraging trajectory. The optics and the language around it is dissonant, and so it might create problems for China. So those are the main reasons. What it means for the future is that China will try as much as possible to get its money back, but it might take years and years and years, and it might actually result in repeated rounds of renegotiation. We've seen that Venezuela has had three, Angola has had three as well, so it might just go and crawl over years and years. From the recipient side is where it's most important that understanding that forgiveness not on the table might slow appetite for further Belt and Road projects or maybe redirect appetite toward more sustainable and more profitable projects. And that would be interesting and that would be good.
0: Do you think that the pandemic has changed how China views success for the BRI? Clearly, there's been an evolution anyway since its inception in 2013. But do you think that China now views the BRI somewhat differently? And in a post-pandemic world, will the BRI look different? Will it sort of take on a different direction? We've already seen more emphasis, as you talked about. And I mentioned on the Health Silk Road, for example. Do you expect to see perhaps any other changes?
1: I think here again, the response is that this will be a continuation of a pre-existing trend especially since the second Belt and Road Forum, we have seen a change in narrative, very strong change in narrative towards quality versus quantity, sustainability of land in greening the Belt and Road. And I think all of this will be accentuated. I think the new hidden time in town is the Health Silk Road, which wasn't as clear at the second Belt and Road Forum, of course. But COVID will precipitate this rethinking because it will precipitate the necessity to understand what recipient countries want better to understand why so much debt has run into trouble, to understand how to use China's political capital and financial capital abroad better to raise better results. As I said, you know, since 2017, the PR environment for the Belt and Road Initiative wasn't great. So how do you use the pandemic to turn that around, if I'm speaking from a Chinese point of view? And so in all likelihood, but it would be interesting to have that conversation in a year, It will be less financing, more targeted financing, potentially more concessional financing. So doing a little bit less commercial, or at least when it is commercial, leaving it to actual commercial banks or actual commercial actors and really separating what is development assistance aid, donations, grants, and focusing on that in terms of public diplomacy. And we've seen a little bit of that with the latest white paper, this bigger and kind of more acute differentiation between the two greener projects, certainly with the 2020, late 2020 announcements, climate targets. This is going to come under your scrutiny. So there's going to need to be changes. China's going to have to walk the talk. On climate, I wouldn't be surprised to see much more of that happening. And health, of course. Health is going to remain a huge issue. And the good news is that health projects are typically smaller. They're typically demand less resources than, say, big infrastructure projects. And they get you pretty much the same goodwill at the moment. So it might be a better investment going forward for Chinese diplomats. But, you know, those are directions that it could go towards. I would
0: love to hear this again in a year and see if I was right. Well, we'll have to revisit this topic again in the future. I know you follow VRI very closely. And thanks so much uh, for your work and for joining us today. It's been a great conversation. We've been talking with Dr. Agatha Kratz, who is Associate Director at Rhodium Group. Thanks so much, Bonnie.